prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, that's just half of the sin. If you remember the story, after he saw her bathing on a roof and lusted for her and called her to his castle and had sex with her, she went home, and a couple months later she sent him a note. I'm pregnant. Now, all the slaves in both households would have known what was going on. But nobody else in Israel knew what was going on. And so David <coughs> called her husband, who was Uriah the Hittite, who was one of David's closest friends, one of his 30 personal bodyguard of the house of Israel. And he called him back from the war. They were making war again against the Philistines. I told you the Philistines had an Iron Age before the, the Israelites did. They knew how to smelt iron. Now, this was the second Iron Age. There was an Iron Age all the way back before the flood. Now, they didn't have to learn a smelting process back then because the oxygen level in the air was so high, fire was incredibly hot and it would melt iron. And so they knew how to do that before the flood, but then they had lost that during the flood. The, the hundred years Noah built the ark, and then everybody was destroyed except for eight people on the ark. And uh, they had lost that. And when the nation spread out after the flood, there were three sons, you remember, uh, triplet boys born to Noah in his 500th year. We always say Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but that's not the order of the birth. Japheth was born first, then Shem, then Ham. But Shem is God's choice, and it's, it's marvelous to me, it's wonderful to me, that God always chooses the second one. When Adam and Eve sinned, he said the seed of woman would crush the serpent's head. You know, Adam was created first, and then Eve was created as a a helper for Adam. By the word, the word helper, ladies, is used more in the Bible for God than for anybody else. So it's not a weak word at all. So <clears throat> it is the seed of woman that will crush the serpent's head. So the second one, will the blessing will come through. And then you look at Abraham, his two boys, when he first had his son Ishmael, God described him as a wild donkey. And uh, the second son, born, you know, to his wife, uh, Sarah, was Isaac, and it was the second one that God chose. And then the two sons of uh, Isaac, I'm just reading a Jewish book right now, and they call him Yitzchak, all the way through the book. That's his actual name, Yitzchak. It's kind of hard to say, but it's a word that means he laughs. And uh, so when Isaac is born, the second one, God chooses him. And then when Isaac's wife finally gives birth to these two kids, before she gives birth, she's griping about the way they're fighting in the womb. And, you know, first she griped that she wouldn't have any kids, and then when she got pregnant, she griped that they're fighting in the womb. And uh, when uh, she finally said, she was going to go to the Lord to find out why this had to be this way. And the Lord said, Two nations are in your womb, and the older will serve the younger. So the older was Esau, who came out first, and then Jacob. And God chose the second one. So if you look at, at the history of God's choices, he always chooses a second. Now, originally, he chose the Jews. But now he has chosen anyone who believes in Jesus. Anyone who believes and confesses will be saved. And so it's no longer the first, but now it's the second. The first is included because if they believe, of course, they are saved too. So that's, to me, that's fascinating. In David's case, God chose the eighth. He chose the youngest son of Jesse. Jesse had seven other sons. But it was David who was chosen. And David was in this 
amazing relationship with the 30 men of his bodyguard. And, uh, you know, it's not surprising that Uriah the Hittite would not be ashamed or embarrassed to come and spend time with David. So he called him, David called him back from the war and sat him down at the table and they ate together and drank together and he got Uriah drunk and then he said, now go home and sleep with your wife. You know, he's trying to cover up his sin. But he was a real soldier and he went out and slept on the porch with the soldiers. So David tried again. The next night got him even more drunk said, go home and sleep with your wife. He went out and slept with the soldiers on the front porch again. He said, I don't have a right to enjoy the the charms of my wife when my brothers are out there in foxholes. And so David writes out a message to take to Joab, the commander of the army. Remember the story? And the commander of the army is told by David, and David gives Uriah his own death warrant that he has rolled up as a scroll put candle wax on it and sealed it with his ring so nobody has the right to open that until it gets to Joab, his commanding officer. And so Joab opened it and it says, put Uriah out at the spear front of the fighting and draw your men back from him. So basically, murder for hire. And Uriah is killed. And when David uh, hears the message, from a runner who comes back from the war, from Joab, the runner says, many died by the sword today, and among them was your, your friend Uriah the Hittite. And David says, well, the sword kills one here and one there. You know, absolutely no remorse. Nobody in Israel knew this. So David takes Bathsheba into his house. But God revealed to Nathan the prophet what had happened. Remember? And Nathan comes in and tells him a parable. He says, I need your judgment between two men, a rich man who had many flocks and herds and a poor man who had only one little special pet ewe lamb. And that little female lamb would sit in his lap and eat from his plate. And when the rich man had a visitor, instead of killing one of his sheep, he went and took the poor man's sheep, killed it as a sacrifice to feed his visitor. I didn't mention the fact that he also killed the poor man. But in the parable, it was just enough that he would steal that, that guy's pet lamb that David stood up from his throne and ripped his clothing in anger and said, that man deserves to die. And Nathan said, you are the man. Now that's guts, folks. He could have called the guards and said, kill him. But David's heart melted and was broken. And he stood up and he said, I have sinned against Yahweh. And that's the last mention of the name Yahweh from David for a long time because he had broken his relationship with God and was afraid to call him by his personal name. And if you read Psalm 51 to cover to cover, you will not see God's personal name in that psalm because it's a psalm of repentance. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O Elohim, he calls him, O God. This is the creator God. This is God the judge. Whenever you see the word Elohim, it's either the creator or the judge. And so he's asking God as judge to have mercy on him. According to your unfailing love, that's your covenant relationship, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. That, that word blot out was a word that was used when kings would send messages to each other. They would take a wax tablet and hold that tablet over the fire until it would melt, and then they would rub it with their hands. And it would disappear, whatever the message on there was. And then they could scratch a new message into that and send it. And David's asking that his sins be held over the fire and melted and wiped away. And it's an interesting image that he would use that for blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. David is feeling loaded with guilt. Have you ever felt that way? 
We don't feel that way enough. We should feel that way a lot more. Because we are guilty before God. We are sinners. If it weren't for Jesus, we would absolutely have no hope whatsoever. No hope. Thanks be to God for his amazing gift. And because of Jesus, the whole world is forgiven. You know, I don't hear this preached in churches. But John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not the church. And Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And 1 John says, He is the forgiveness for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The world is forgiven. The message of the church is grace and forgiveness, not judgment. We were talking about this earlier. You know, so many churches are known for judging people. But the church should be a purveyor of grace to the world. And you read the book of Acts and you'll see that it says the forgiveness of sins was proclaimed to the whole world. You know, our job is not to go out and tell them, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. Our job is to say, you've been forgiven. Jesus has taken away your sins. Will you accept that forgiveness? And people who will believe that, who will believe Jesus, accept it into his kingdom. When their hearts change and they become obedient and they are baptized and literally, as verse 3 says here, or verse 2 says, wash away and cleanse me from my sin wash away this is what Paul was told by Ananias get up and get yourself baptized washing away your sins calling on the name of the Lord there is some connection between baptism and the forgiveness of sin there's also a connection between baptism and the Holy Spirit when Jesus is baptized even though he was born of the Spirit the Spirit comes down on him in a fuller measure so baptism water and spirit are always connected from Genesis 1, verse 2, the water, the, the Spirit brooding over the waters, all the way through the Bible, the water-spirit connection. And David sees that. He says, For I know my transgression, my sin is always before me. There was a time when I was struggling with the sin, and I would get a vision of that sin between me and God. And I knew what David meant here. When he tries to worship God, his sin is there blocking the way. And that's what he's saying. My transgression, my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Well, he had actually sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and all Israel and his own self and God. But what he sees is his relationship with God has been destroyed. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He deserves death, and he knows it. And he knows God is right when he judges him. Surely I was sinful at birth. You know, everyone in this planet who has ever been born on this planet is born a sinner. We are born with sin in our flesh. The Bible teaches this. The biblical doctrine of original sin is the original sinner is Adam, and ever since him, everyone else has had Adam's seed in him, has been born a sinner except for one person, the only man without the seed of man. The only one without the seed of Adam was Jesus. And Jesus was not born a sinner. He could have done just like the first Adam. He's called the second Adam twice by Paul. He could have done just like the first Adam and sinned. But he always chose what was right. And he never sinned. Imagine living 33 and a half years and never sinning at all. Not even the sin of omission. He always did what was right. I used to think the sin of omission was a sin I was supposed to commit but didn't. But that's not what it means. <laughs> sin of omission is, you know, you should visit them orphans and widows. and You should take care of people and help people. Sometimes we don't do that. Surely I was sinful at birth, yes. Sinful. 
from the time my mother conceived me, even in the womb, because of Adam's sin living in our flesh, we're sinners. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, sin dwells in my flesh. It's in there. And so he says when a Christian sins, it's really not the Christian that's doing it. Have you read that? He says, when I sin, it's really not I that do it, but it's sin living in me that produces that. So that's why we're like little children. We're not liable for our sins if we're Christians. We're responsible for them from our perspective, but we're not liable to God for them because of what Christ did. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Teach me wisdom in my inmost place. You'll reach inside me and do something, God. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Hyssop is a branch with a lot of little bitty, it's a desert plant, a lot of bitty leaves on it. And the priest would take that and dip it into the blood of the red heifer and go into the Holy of Holies one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and shake that three times over the ark, covering the ark with blood, covering symbolically the people of Israel with blood. And so David is asking God to cleanse him the same way. Let the sacrifice from the altar cleanse me, he says. Wash me. And I'll be whiter than snow. Isaiah chapter 1 says, Oh, your sins are as scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. They are red, red like crimson. They shall be as wool. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Now see, David knew that the Messiah would have no bones broken. And when I read Psalm 2 and I read some of other David's, uh, David's psalms, I think David thought he was the Messiah. Psalm 2, the word Mashiach in Hebrew, Messiah means an anointed one. And David was anointed three times, as I said last night. And so here's a guy who was certainly anointed. I think he thought he was a Messiah, that he could do no wrong until he sinned and was confronted. And when that happened, he was devastated. And he says, the bones you have crushed. In other words, he knows he's not any longer who he thought he might be. And the hope of the Messiah kept passing into the next generation. David hoped his son Solomon would be the Messiah. But Solomon also failed. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. There's that image again of the fire blotting out the wax. And then this wonderful verse, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Create, O God. Notice it's Elohim again. The creator of the universe. The Genesis 1.1 says, Bereshith bara Elohim eth hashamayim beeth in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word created is used one time for the entire universe. It's used three times for Adam and Eve. Have you read that? First chapter of Genesis. The word create appears only five times in Genesis 1. But here, David is asking God to create a whole new universe inside him. I remember uh, uh, Dr. Alexis E. Carroll, one of the great psychiatrists from the last century, said that the universe inside a man is greater than the universe outside. And David is asking God to create a whole new universe for him on the inside. Create my heart brand new, pure, clean, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. See, he's concerned. He's sinned. He's afraid God will throw him out. Listen to the next line. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You think David didn't know about the Holy Spirit? 
Isaiah 63, if you want to see the Trinity very clearly, look at Isaiah 63. These guys knew that God was more than just one. In fact, the name Elohim in Hebrew, translated God, means three or more. The im ending is a masculine plural, and plural in Hebrew means three or more. They have a dual form. If God were two, his name would be Elohim. But this three, his nature is Father, Son, Spirit, and it's always holy, holy, holy. It's always three, never two or four. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let me be willing to obey you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Adonai, this is not the name Yahweh, but small letters, O-R-D. This is the human figure of God. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. And then the, the last verse... Uh, the last part of it is probably uh, added by someone else, but not this section right here. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. See, he's, this is a contradiction to what was taught by the priests. The priests always taught burnt offering, burnt offering, burnt offering. That's how you get your sins forgiven. But in the first chapter of Isaiah, he says, I am sick and tired of your burnt offerings. I don't need any bulls or rams or goats from you. The cattle on their hills and their thousands are mine. Why would I need something from you? He says, your solemn assemblies make me sick. Have you read Isaiah 1? You know, God is devastated by bad worship, by people who mouth the words, but their hearts are far from him. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. What God wants is what's inside us. A broken heart. A contrite spirit. Contrite means bruised. You know, this is why Jesus begins his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize they are spiritually in grinding poverty. Because theirs is the reign of God right now. The kingdom of heaven is in them right now. And then these last two verses are added by a later editor. A lot of the Psalms have things like this added toward the end of a Psalm or the beginning of a Psalm. And these last two verses uh, you can look at. It's basically a repudiation of what, G what David just said. He just said, you don't want burnt offerings. You don't want sacrifices. But they say, in your good pleasure, let Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, then there will be righteous sacrifices and whole burnt offerings and so on. Uh, probably a priest that put that in the book of Psalms added those two verses. It's not bad to do that to wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs are edited throughout. Like you go to Proverbs 25.1 and it says, The sons of Solomon, I mean the, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Somebody wrote that in, you know. Uh, and there are several places in the wisdom literature where there are additions. And that's Okay. Now, notice he never named Yahweh, never called him Yahweh through this whole psalm. He feels his relationship with God is broken. And he's afraid to call him by name. But now I want to show you the next psalm he wrote. Go to Psalm 32, please. Psalm 32. What a wonderful psalm this is. Starts out. This is another Psalm of David, and the scholars say he wrote this one after he wrote Psalm 51. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin Yahweh does not count against him, 
and in whose spirit is no deceit. So, tremendous joy for people whose sins are forgiven. You know, Christians, we should be filled with joy. It's one of the uh, most inevitable signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Christians are happy people. It's amazing that we can be poor in spirit and miserable about our sin, but still be glorifying God in great, uh, in great joy because our sins are forgiven. I love that. Well, he goes on. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. In other words, when I didn't confess my sins, when I didn't go before the Lord, I held it in. I pretended it didn't happen. You ever been there? Or you're afraid to go call, crawl up into your cosmic daddy's lap and look him in the face and confess your sins? You know, sometimes we want to cover it, and that's what David did for some time until Nathan confronted him. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, and day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. When I acknowledged, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my, my transgressions to Yahweh. And you forgave. Look how quick it is. I will confess my transgression, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This, folks, is First, first John 1 John 1.9. If we keep on confessing our sins, He is faithful and righteous in order that He may forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reason I snap my fingers there... When John uses that verb form, he is referring back to Calvary. We keep confessing, not to get forgiven, but we confess because we are forgiven. Because Jesus has already cleansed and purified us from the cross. He died for the sins of the world. And when we confess, our confession is proof that we've been forgiven. Does that make sense? He is faithful and righteous in order that, if I were translating the New Testament, I would say in order that he may have forgiven our sins and cleansed us, because it's past tense. It already happened at Calvary. You know, all the people before the cross hoped toward the cross. And all the people after the cross hoped back toward the cross. For the Apostle Paul, the cross is the center of reality. When he talks about knowing the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, it's a picture of the cross. If you want to know God, if you want to know how much he loves you, look at the cross. Meditate on the cross. Jesus is incredible. He's dying in misery, and he's thinking of everybody else. He's dying in misery, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He says to John, Behold your mother, and woman, behold your son. He's fulfilling his obligation as the oldest son to take care of his mother. You know, he's thinking about other people on the cross. Isn't that amazing? Man, when I suffer, I think about me! Me, me, me! You know? But that's not what it's supposed to be. When we suffer, we should pray for others, as Jesus did. Man, oh man, what an example we have. Think about that for a minute. I said to myself, I will confess my transgression to the Yahweh. And there it is. He forgave the guilt of my sin. Just getting the idea to confess, just wanting to confess, the attitude of the heart to confess, and God sees that and accepts it and forgives you. Even before you speak the words, Father, forgive me. He's already forgiven. Because he knows what's in our hearts. 
John says Jesus didn't know, need anyone to tell him what was inside a person's heart. He could see into our hearts. He knew. Isaiah predicted that back in Isaiah 11, that Jesus would be able to sniff out the fear of the Lord in people. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. Here it is. This is where Corey Tenboom got the title for her book, The Hiding Place. God is the hiding place. She was in a prison camp with the Nazis. And my wife and I went and heard her speak feisty little 85-year-old lady. And man, oh man, she'd been through it in the prison camps of Hitler. Amazing woman. The hiding place? She said they had Bible studies in their barracks. And when they got to the place where it says, give thanks in all things, she said her sister said, I can't give thanks for the lice in this place. She was angry about the lice until one day she heard one of the guards say, I'm not going in there. There's lice in there. That's how they were able to have Bible study. Isn't that amazing? She said from then on she thanked God for the lice. <laughs> you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. Surround me with the songs of deliverance. And I will instruct you and teach you, God says, in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule that have no understanding. There's a place in Isaiah where, in the first chapter where Isaiah says, The ox knows his owner and the, the donkey knows his master's crib, but my people don't even know. That means the Jews back then were dumber than a donkey, dumber than an ox. You know? And the word master there is an interesting word. In Hebrew, it's the word Baal. Baal means owner, master, husband. Isaiah's punning against the gods that they were worshiping in the Holy Land. But he goes on and says, but must be controlled by bit and bridle. You know, you have to control a donkey or he will not come to you. You know what you call a dog with no legs? Doesn't matter, he won't come to you. Somebody said, you know what you do with a dog with no legs? Take him out for a drag. Uh, <laughs> not awful. What do you call a, a cow with no legs? Ground beef. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or utter disaster. <laughs> oh, my mind is all cluttered up with this kind of stuff. Just please keep me back from that. From the ridiculous to the sublime. Many are the woes of the wicked, but Yahweh's unfailing love, that's that covenant love, that commitment, surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in Yahweh and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. We should rejoice and sing as Christians every day. What happens when you're filled with the Spirit? You know, there's two commands in that, that, exit, uh, that uh, Ephesians 5:18 and following, that passage. The first command is, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting. The next command, guys, is husbands, love your wives. That means get up from the couch and help with the dishes. Get the vacuum out and help with the vacuuming. That's what it means. If you really love your wife, you'll help her. The biblical view of agape is helping others, and we're commanded to help our wives. That's a great uh, unpopular teaching in our century. I don't know where it's written that women have to prepare the meal 
And then after the men eat it and go in the other room, the women have to clean up the meal. I don't see that written anywhere. Rejoice in the Lord. The Apostle Paul says that same thing, doesn't he? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You want to read a book about rejoicing, Christians? Read Philippians. Rejoicing is mentioned in there 15 times. It's a book of joy. And joy is the most infallible proof of the presence of God. All right. Now, we've looked at two psalms. One psalm about overwhelming guilt, where he doesn't speak to God and call him by his name. And another psalm where he calls him Yahweh from the outset and says, When I covered my sins, my bones wasted away, and your hand was heavy on me all day long. When I said to myself, I will confess my sins to the Lord, you forgave the guilt of my sin. You know, confess. Let's take time and do that. Confess. Tell him what you've done, and he will forgive. Amazing thing about God, he never runs out of forgiveness. He taught, taught that lesson to Peter. Remember, Peter says, how many times must I forgive? Three times? That's what the uh, Pharisees taught. But Peter said seven times? You know, he thought he was really improving on the Pharisees' teaching. And Jesus said, I tell you, 70 times seven. If he didn't forgive us 70 times seven, you know, once you hit 491, no, you're out. No, I just, just kidding. Okay. Any questions or comments? Yes. Is is you sure it's not capitalized because the last three letters are capitals, but they're smaller. Oh, it is. Well, three times in this Psalm 32, it's just Yahweh. So they made a mistake. I mean, translators sometimes make a mistake. The Bible doesn't have a whole lot of mistakes in it, but translators make a mistake now and then. I have seen, uh, in fact, I wrote when NIV first translated uh, 1 John, I wrote to uh, the people over at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and told them that they'd made a mistake in the translation of 1 John. Told them where it was. And the next edition came out. Never heard back from them, but the next edition came out and they had corrected it. I probably wasn't the only one that wrote. <laughs> what else, folks? Anything else? No. Matter of fact, that changed my life. I was uh, told in a class, uh, a class entitled Understanding Your Own Personality. And uh, I was almost 38 years old at this point, and I had been, I had just been addicted to pornography almost my whole life. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 20, and I had fought it and fought it and fought it for years after that. Uh, I was teaching at Dallas Christian, seven, this is my seventh year teaching, and I had bought pornography two times back then. You know, this is before the Internet, before it just dumped on you all this stuff. But uh, I knew it was wrong, and I knew I was coming out of it, and I was begging God to help me overcome it. And I was in this class under Ron Reif, who was our dean, and he said, I want you to read this passage in 1 John 2, 16. By this we know love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. He said, now where it says we and us, I want you to put your name in there. And I went back and read it out loud to the class. And by this, Mark Barrier knows love. Not that Mark Barrier loved Jesus, but that he loved Mark Barrier and gave himself for Mark Barrier. And when I read that, it just, it was like the universe lurched. Everything changed. I realized he'd forgiven me. And I immediately forgave myself. And then I stopped sitting in judgment on everybody else. 
Now, I don't know, what years were you at, at Dallas, Harold? You were there before I had forgiven myself. Yeah, and I was very judgmental, remember? Yeah. Uh, but God helped me. Uh, if I hadn't put my name in that, I don't know where I'd been. But, you know, Christian, being a Christian is a long obedience in the same direction. Almost always it's on a plateau. But every once in a while, you'll have a quantum leap. And I sat down a couple of years ago and counted that I've had five quantum leaps, and that was one of them. Uh, another one was, the most recent one was when I suddenly understood Hebrew from the inside. You know, I'd been teaching it and studying it all these years, and then all of a sudden, I got it. And that was another quantum leap. It helped me see things I had never seen before in Scripture. Psalm 119 again. Show me wonders from your, your, your word, from your law. And there are wonders hidden in there, amazing things hidden in there, that Solomon says it's our glory to search those out, to find them. The more you study, the more you realize how ignorant you are, how much you have to study. So, yeah, I think that's a great way to study Scripture. Put your name in there. Yeah, I have trouble with some of the scriptures. Uh, some of them, I think, are for the people back then. But some of them are just universal. You know, I think in John, when Jesus says to the uh, disciples... The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. I think that's for the disciples. I think that's why they were able to write the truth in all their books. But that doesn't mean that God won't lead us into truth. I just think the, in, the immediate uh, meaning of that is to the, to the 12 disciples. Teach others, right? Yeah, that's verse 10, uh, 10, 11, and 12. Yeah, in Psalm 51. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, wonderful stuff. I think teaching young men is one of the most important things we can do. Benjamin Franklin wrote a book on uh, teaching virtue to, to uh, young people. Benjamin Franklin, I, I told you I read his autobiography, and he, he was a, a Bible-filled person. You know, he based every his whole life on the Bible. And all these guys that started this country were just filled with the Scripture. They all knew Latin and Greek and Hebrew, and they all spoke French as well as English. And uh, you know, we've lost that. We've lost that level of education. You know, those were the great universities in Europe that taught those guys. And the tragedy is now we have dumbed down our schools to the place where the SAT scores are nosediving. Ever since the Bible was taken out of the curriculum, 1963, SAT scores have nosedived. And, uh, you know, you heard me say my students today are the worst I've ever had. You have to just drive them. It's like pulling teeth to get them to read anything besides these little handheld screens that they have. I love them, though. I'm not going to give up on them. What else? Anything else?
Yeah, both of Yeah, they both insulted him. And then, uh, what I think happened was Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And one of the thieves, they may have both heard it, but one of them just changed his heart like that. And then he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, that's, that remember me part is in Luke. But Matthew and Mark both say both thieves insulted Jesus. And I think they did. But... I think this happened after Jesus' prayer. Yeah. He, he said seven, seven sayings from the cross. Uh, I've written a paper on that from our, uh, I write for our local paper. If any of you want my articles, I've got probably 60 little one-page articles that are great to read over coffee. Oh, a lot of them are on the prayer, uh, are on your website. Yeah, you can find a lot of them there, and there's probably another 30 or 40 that aren't on there. But uh, You can also go to the Kaimishi uh, Christian Mission website. I think it's kaimishichristianmission.org. And uh, you can find all my articles up until about a year ago on there. And I also have two books. I probably should tell you this. I got two books. One of them is called The Bible for Busy People, the Old Testament. One of them is called The Bible for Busy People, the New Testament. If you type, if you go to Amazon, type in Mark Barrier, spell my name right, B-E-R-R-I-E-R, uh, my books will pop up. And you can buy the Old Testament one there. But uh, the New Testament one's presently out of print, and if you would like a copy, I will send you a free e-copy if you just send me $25,000. No, if you just... <laughs> That's not free at all, is it? For this donation, I will send you. <laughs> no, uh, I'll send you a free copy of my ebook if you want it, the, the Bible for Busy People, the New Testament. I'd be happy to do that. It's written uh, with about an 800-word vocabulary. I wrote it for my freshman students uh, for introduction to the Bible, and it's and yet it's a distillation of about 60 years of studying the Bible. So. There's a lot of truth in there, and uh, but you can say heavy-duty things in in simple vocabulary. And that's one of the. I should tell you this: that my aim in my ministry is to take the vastness and the complexity of the Bible, and make it understandable to people. That's really my aim in life. I want it to be understood. I don't want it to be some PhD thing that. You know, people don't understand, sir. Boy, when Adam and Eve sinned, did it alter the DNA or the atomic structure? I have so many questions about that. I have questions about the second law of thermodynamics, which is the most widely accepted law. It's called entropy. Uh, everything runs down. You wind a watch and it runs down. You put a battery in your watch and one day you got to put another battery in because that one runs down. Everything runs down. Uh, everything on this planet runs down. Uh, people run down. You know. Uh, and I wondered if before Adam sinned, if entropy was in effect, if they had eaten something, uh, would it have turned to waste? You know, I don't, I mean... I don't think that they were there long enough before they ate the tree that they weren't supposed to. I don't think they were there long enough for that to happen. Somebody called it the age of innocence. I think it was probably five minutes as they were walking to the tree. You know, after he got over seeing her and got so excited about seeing her, then they're on their way to that tree, and he's telling them, you know, God said, don't eat from this. And they're talking it over, and she finally says, well, why don't we just say, let's not touch it. They say, the Jews say that she was the first Talmudist, the first commentary on the law to build a fence around it. So you, if you don't touch it, you certainly can't eat it, you know. But it obviously didn't help them. Mark Twain says, if I'd been there, I think I could have done just as well. Uh, 
did it change their DNA? Did something happen there that made the flesh of Adam change? Yes, because he says, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. I think the seeds of death entered Adam and Eve at that point. Now, those people were created to live forever. So it took death about 932 years in Adam's case for him to die. 932 years. The whole power and fecundity of the entire human race was in those two people. And the rabbis say they probably had hundreds of children. And when you consider the fact that they only mention a few, three, of their children, Cain and Abel were born twins, like Jacob and Esau. Uh, And then the only other one mentioned is Seth. But when you get to chapter 5, it says Adam had many other sons and daughters. So we know that they had many children. And when you think of the fact that they lived 900 years, you know, if you cranked out a kid every five years, how many would you have? And some of them are twins and some of them are triplets. I think those people back then talked to the Polaroid camera people, and they were just cranking them out every few minutes, you know. Uh, I think maybe the word rabbi means is the plural of rabbit, you think? (laughs) Uh, Maybe not. Any other questions? Kind of got off subject there. But that's that's a good question. I've really struggled with the whole thing about the Garden of Eden and how Adam and Eve were there, and then God had to get them out of there so they wouldn't eat from the tree and live forever. You know, if you're going to live forever in a sinful state, who would want to... I don't want to live 900 years in a sinful state. Now, I wouldn't mind living 100 years if I'm healthy. And you all let me live. Let's pray.